This is God Unites, Finding Spiritual Unity in Religious Diversity. Welcome to God Unites. Our guest today is Scott Reeder, a Springfield journalist, a reporter for the Illinois Times, and a man of faith. Scott, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Scott, you and I talked, what, two weeks ago, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And got acquainted with each other. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that conversation, your faith came through, your spiritual sense. Okay. And, And I told you at the time, I would love to have you as a guest on the God Unites podcast. Oh, so I enjoyed being here. It was, it was a wonderful conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was. I enjoyed that. Well, Scott, in God Unites, our theme is finding spiritual unity, a common spiritual language among people of a variety of different spiritual religious traditions. Sometimes religious affiliations can divide people. Sometimes religious doctrines can divide people. But the spirit can unite us. We speak the same spiritual language, so to speak. And as we were talking, I could feel us speaking the same spiritual language, even though we're from different Mm -hmm. faith traditions and backgrounds. But I'd love to, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear your story, the backstory behind the Scott Reader of today. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my parents were United Methodists. They were very, very active within the um, um, the church the whole time I was growing up. My father, I think, was was um, president of the church board you know, two or three times uh, um, in my hometown of Galesburg. Uh, I grew up on a farm. There was a lot of hard work to do all the time. As far as my spiritual journey, um, my parents had to go travel on a trip out of town, and I was, when I was four years old, and they invited this older couple. I use the term older kind of relatively. The, the couple, in hindsight, was probably younger than I am today, to come over and babysit uh, my, my myself and my two my brother and my sister. So I can remember their names were Dorothy and Herb Willer, and. They they were a wonderful couple. They I remember them taking me for walks on um, a dry lake bed and near Galesburg when they drained Lake Story, which was the big lake there, and and all kinds of adventures they took me on. But one time they, I can still remember this. They sat me down in uh, on a beige couch in the um, living room and they talked to me about Jesus and how to be how to bring Jesus into my life and. When people ask me, can you point to a point of religious conversion for you or realization, I think it was at that point when I was just four years old, when this, couple, this older couple was sitting with me and talking to me. They uh, they had what they called the wordless book, which is like a different color for each page. And you know, like, I don't remember all the colors, but black was the color of death and yellow was the, co- was the color of gold on the streets of heaven. And But they would talk about the spiritual journey with me. And it was just a, it was a wonderful experience for me. And, you know, I was able, I was um, happy. I got to see um, many, many, many years later when I got married, I, we invited the um, Dorothy Willer to come to the, to the wedding reception. And I was able to thank her for um, this wonderful gift of faith that she shared with me as a child. It was wonderful. 
but I grew up Methodist. Uh, my parents were kind of in the conservative wing of the church. Um, Methodism is such a broad spectrum um, denomination. You can have be very much an evangelical within that denomination, or you could be almost a Unitarian in that denomination. It's just it it scans it spans the spectrum, and. I left for college, uh, went to Iowa State, and I had a um, life-altering experience. You know, I prayed to God. My sister and my brother, who were older than me, had had horrible roommate experiences. My sister's uh, roommate had tried to kill herself. My brother had had just some really difficult experiences as well. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to be praying about this ahead of time. And I'm like, God, can you give me a... Good roommate, somebody that's um, loves God too, and you know, somebody that's, that's going to be a good good situation. Because you know, I didn't drink, I didn't, I lived a pretty reserved life. Uh, let's put it that way. And I ended up with a drug dealer for a roommate. That had to be a culture shock. It was an enormous culture shock, and you know, and he, he was not only a drug dealer, but he was an addict, and. One time he came came back into our room. Um, I th- spaced out out on, on on some type of psychedelic, and um, he punched out the windows to our dorm room. And you know, it was just I'm like, this is just weird. I'm I'm scared to death. You know, I mean, I'm 18 years old, away from home for the first time, and I'm dealing with this. And I started digging deeper and deeper into scripture, and it's, it's funny because. I was debating, I remember sitting in my uh, my bedroom at home whether and packing up for college, and I was like, should I pack my Bible or not? People think I'm strange if I pack my Bible, but I better pack my Bible. But I hope nobody sees it. And it became this really this thing I really leaned on um, that freshman year. I just started reading the Psalms every day out loud to my, you know, when I was in the room by myself. Uh, it was comforting to me. And then I was like, what do I do with this situation? The administration wasn't willing to separate the two of us until the end of the semester. And I got this just, just a horrible situation. People would knock on the door in the middle of the night. You know, and the weird thing was his, his name was Scott, too. So they'd knock on the door at 3 in the morning. Is Scott here? Not the Scott you're looking for. And I'd go back to bed. And, and you know, it was just really bad. So, yeah, anyway, you know, but I, I didn't know spiritually, how do I deal with this situation? You know, I was praying, you know, saying the Psalms and I'm, and I, what does scripture say? It says, pray for your enemies. And this kid hated me. I mean, he really hated me. I mean, so I just started praying for him every day, morning and night, just kept praying for him. And then at the end of the semester, he ended up, um, basically flunking out and um, leaving. And um, I decided I was going to continue to pray for him. And I wrote him a letter telling him I was going to be praying for him and mailed him a Bible. And, um, you know, this, and I had a football ticket, a ticket to the Iowa-Iowa State game um, that the two of us had attended together with his parents that I use as a bookmark in my Bible. And for the next, oh, 25, 30 years, I would, when I'd see that bookmark, I would pray for him. And I guess, oh, maybe, 
oh, 10 years ago, maybe 11, 11 years ago now I think about it, I got this phone call out of the blue from my freshman roommate in college who I hadn't had any contact with. And he goes, is this Scott Reader? And I go, yeah. Is this a Scott Reader that used to live on Kalen Beck House at Iowa State back in 1983? And I go, yeah, who is this? Well, this is Scott Thompson. And I wanted to tell you that um, I, I had this strange experience. He goes, and I go, well, what happened? And I'm not breaking any um, confidence here. He's shared this story publicly. So uh, he goes, well, you know, I was my wife and I were having marital problems, and I didn't know what to do. And I, um, he said, I, I went to a pastor, a local pastor in town who I went to high school with, and I told him all the problems we were having. And I was waiting for all this marital advice. And he said, you need to accept Jesus into your life. And he said, so I did, and things started to change. And he said, and I I kept praying, and um, I started getting involved in the Bible study. And he said, one morning we were, were doing our Bible study, and the lesson was to write down the 10 people that had the biggest influence um, on you spiritually in your life. And he said, you know, I sat down and I wrote down my mom and my dad and I wrote down, you know, the pastor. And he said, I got to number six or seven, Scott, and I wrote your name down. And he said, and he said, I can't figure out why. Why did I write your name down? He said, I haven't thought about you for decades. And then I said, well, he did mail me that Bible, but he said, when he mailed me that Bible, I was so mad, I rolled down the car window and threw it out the window uh, and out on the street. And uh, he goes, but he goes, I want to know why did, why did I write your name down? And I said, well, because I've been praying for you for um, all these years. And I told him the story about the football ticket that I used as Bible bookmark. And I sent him a picture of the, um, of the bookmark and told him that story. And we've become friends since then. And he's really turned into a dynamic individual. He's, um, I just got a Facebook post from him um, like three weeks ago where he's a missionary in Africa right now doing some work. And he's gone, he's traveled all over the world um, sharing, sharing the gospel. And he's really on fire for the gospel. So that was my first experience. Uh, my, so my freshman year. Can we loop back before you move on? Sure. I'd like to delve into that just a little sure. bit. That's a powerful story. Okay. For multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. Number one, you were praying to God for your roommate with whom you had a really tense relationship. I would say it was more than tense. It was acrimonious. It was not a good situation at all. Why? What drove you to pray? I think it was the Holy Spirit. I think that when I would read scripture, it would kept saying, you know, pray for your enemies, uh, love your enemies. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. I mean, and th that's the lesson of Jesus right there. I mean, and he, and I'm like, but, but, yeah, I wanted to say, but God, you have, this guy's a real jerk. You don't understand. I mean, you know, this guy is punching out the windows in our dorm room. He's, he, he, he's just driving me nuts. And so, but I felt compelled for whatever reason to pray for him. Now, when you say pray for him, what do you mean? What do I mean? I I'm prayed that God's blessings would shower on him, that God would 
make himself real to him, that he would turn his life around. I didn't pray that he'd be my friend. I didn't pray that he would um, be nice to me. I prayed that God would bless him. And when you pray for blessings on your enemies, it's a spiritual experience for yourself as well. Tell us about that. Oh, gosh. Um, it is a, one of the most difficult things to do is to pray for people who are being mean to you, people who are being unfair to you. But I find it to be extremely rewarding. Um, I can remember, um, flash forward, you know, 30 some years, when, when my wife and I would first get married, uh, got married, um, we'd pray out loud and I'd pray for some, I'd pray for a particular um, person in my workplace that was not a nice person and had not been honest in his business dealings with me. And my, that used to make my wife so mad. Like, why are you praying for that jerk? What is, you know, and I'm like, because we're supposed to pray for our enemies. And I know it's counterintuitive to do that. It's not human nature to be that way. When you're doing it, it's because something else is compelling you to do it. Exactly. There's something else prompting you to do something that is contrary to human nature. Exactly. And yet it is, obviously, from what you're saying, mm -hmm. I think you would agree, the Spirit of God. Yeah, exactly. And here's the Spirit of God moving upon you to pray for someone who maybe enemy overstates it a little bit, but it's somebody, yeah, pretty close. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. <laughs> Sounds yeah. Like, you know, yeah. And that's something that you would not have done if it wasn't real, if it was just you being a nice guy. You know, I, you know, I remember going to my, um, resident assistant and saying, you know, how am I supposed to deal with this guy? You know? And, Resident assistant looks at me, and I'm six foot four, and you know, I'm a big guy. And this roommate of mine was this tiny little guy. I mean, he was like five foot uh, nothing almost. I mean, I'm exaggerating there, but he was not a, a very big guy. He was not real substantial. He said, "Just beat him up, beat him up, Scott. You know, give him a slug and say, you're not doing drugs around me anymore. Get out of here, or or whatever." And I'm like, "No, I'm not going to do that." Prayer is an extraordinarily beneficial thing. Not just for the person you're praying for, but for the, per for the person that's doing the praying. Those are two very important points. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to the first one of those. You've talked about the second one, mm -hmm. the effect on you. Mm -hmm. The second level of this story is the effect on your roommate, the other Scott number two. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he called me for a reason. Why on earth did I write your name down on this list? It was something substantive that he knew there was something going on there, but he couldn't figure out why. Why would I write down the name of this guy I didn't particularly like, who I didn't get along with? Why would I write his name down on a sheet of paper decades after I've last spoken to him? As having spiritual impact in his life. Exactly. He couldn't figure it out. He wanted to know why. And that's that I was able to share that with him. And 
What do you think it was that prompted him to write your name down? I think he was prompted by God. The Holy Spirit prompted him to do that. But he didn't know why. He couldn't figure it out. Now, on multiple levels here, as you've shared this story, Mm -hmm. it indicates God is real. Exactly. You're not just praying to the wall. You're not just praying. It's not a form of meditation, which is valuable. Yeah. Introspection. There's something external to you and to your roommate at work. Exactly. So, may I share another story? Please. Well, you know, one of the things that I, and I I feel really stupid sharing this now, I mean, but when I was in college, I really worried, you know, will I find a wife? You know, will I find somebody to share the rest of my life with me? And um, I didn't date much in high school or college. And, you know, I just kind of felt like, you know, I'm going to spend the, um, you know, am I going to, I'll never meet anybody after I get out of school. I'm, you know, I'm sure that that's not going to happen. And, and I was really stressed out about it. And in retrospect, that was really dumb, but I worried about that. And I ended up working um, a summer at a Christian camp in Colorado, Camp Red Cloud. It was out in the, one of the most remote places in Colorado wilderness. And, um, we had a pastor there, young guy. He was actually a seminary student, and um, he would lead a Bible study. And one time, he led a Bible study about spiritual intimacy. And this is just with the staff members. And he's talking about, you know, we all want intimacy. We all want to find that person to share the rest of our lives with. And he talked about, and I still have a copy of the lesson. I actually stuck that in my Bible, too, from years ago. And um, uh, But he said, you know, before you can have true intimacy with another human being, you need to have intimacy with God. And it was talking about, you know, this whole idea of, you know, becoming in communion with God. And... It was really kind of revelatory for me. And um, then after we had that lesson, we could all kind of hike off in the wilderness and, you know, pray. So I hiked up to the top of this hill in the middle of this beautiful mountain valley and this overlooking um, the camp and the huge mountains on either side. And it's just gorgeous. And I pitch a tent there and I build a fire and I pray earnestly that God would, would, would bring a woman into my life to share the rest of my life with. Now, mind you, I'm only 20 years old at this time, and I'm just praying. I can just remember how earnestly I was praying. And anyway, um, flash forward 18 years. Uh, I had you know, worked in newspapers all across the United States. I've done, I'd gotten, gone on to get a bachelor's and a master's degree. You know, I, um, had dated some, but you know, I just still had not found, um, somebody I really wanted to share the rest of my life with. And I, uh, was going through a period of personal crisis. My mother was diagnosed with cancer and, um, a friend saw that I was really, um, kind of bummed out and said, I'm going to set you up on a blind date with my friend, Joan. You know, at this point, it's like, you know how many blind dates I've gone out with um, in my life? You know, I, no. Yes, we're going to do this. So I said, okay, fine. So we go, I go out on a blind date with this young woman. It was about, 
two or three days before um, Thanksgiving. Um, I guess it was 21 years ago this week. And we just really hit it off. Um, we sat there and we talked for five hours straight. And um, her, her mom had cancer too, the same type of cancer as mine. And we talked about it. She gave advice about that. And we were really connected. And make a long story short, um, we, we were there for five hours and finally the manager kicked us out we were the last ones keeping this restaurant open and it's like one in the morning or something ridiculous and five weeks later we were engaged to be married and um then during the engagement i could be a real jerk at times and you know i you know i i wasn't really willing to give myself fully to this idea of marriage what is marriage you know and it's giving fully to each other and serving one another and so Anyway, my, my um, Joan was um, traveling with her family to Colorado uh, for a vacation. I said, why don't I fly out there and meet you guys? And the two of us could drive up to where I used to work 18 years ago at this camp. You know, it'd be kind of a good experience. And you'll get to see some, a part of Colorado that most people don't ever get to see. So she said, sure. You know, so we, we drive up there. And at this point, things are a little bit tense in this engagement. I ha- hadn't committed to a uh, wedding date. I hadn't committed to where we would get married. She, you know, we were, both of our moms had cancer and, um, you know, it was like, I don't want to get married in, um, in my hometown of Galesburg or here in Springfield because there is no way we'll be able to control the, the guest list. Our mothers will take over and um, it'll be, we'll, we'll, we are hoping for a, I have a dozen people to be at this wedding. We suddenly have two, three hundred people, and you know, we, you know, we didn't want that. And you know, plus, it was a situation where neither one of our mothers was really in a situation where they could help, but they could add challenges to the, to the situation. Let's just put it that way. So we're kind of at this impasse, and and she's kind of irritated at me because she didn't feel like I was willing to give myself fully to this this proposition uh, of marriage. Well, you're 38 years old. I'm 38 years old, yeah. And a guy. And a guy, yeah. And I've been single my whole life. And um, so we we drive out to this camp in the middle of a Colorado wilderness, and we get out of the car. And uh, one of the things that was about this camp when I worked there was I had been given responsibility for this 14-year-old boy. <laughs> I was to mentor him, to be a spiritual mentor to him. I'm sorry. This was the most obnoxious 14-year-old kid you've ever met. He would not shut up. He would not. You know, you know, you know the type. They're 14 years old. They won't come up for air. They challenge you on everything. I remember one time he wanted to argue that his his particular Bible did not have a um, uh, a book of Psalms in it. And I'm like, yeah, every book, of, every Bible has Psalms. No, mine doesn't. But he, we, he, he just drove me nuts. But I, I worked with him and worked with him. And anyway, so the story goes. I, we get to the camp and I get out and um, I see the direct one of the directors and I yell at her, "Hey, Ruth Ann," and. Um, she looks at me and she's got this blank look like, who are you? I should know you, but you know, I, I don't know who you are. And I said, oh, Scott Rader. And she came over and gave me a hug and I introduced her to my fiance. And then her husband comes out and his name is Danny Vile. And she, he, uh, 
he's excited and he sees us and we talk and um and he goes so what's the first thing that one woman says to another show me your engagement ring and she shows it to her and then she says so when are you guys getting married and joan kind of gives me the look like and she and um Ruth Ann starts laughing. Oh, Scott, you've got to set a date. Well, have you guys figured out where you're going to get married? Um, and I, I said, well, no, we really haven't figured out where. And um, Danny File says to me, well, you should get married here in our chapel. And I go, you don't have a chapel. And he goes, oh, yes, we do. We built one since you were here. And I go, where? And he goes, right over there. And he points at this hill where I had pitched a tent 18 years before and built this fire and prayed so earnestly for a, a woman to share my life with. And I go, wow, that's weird. So I try to change the subject, you know, like, well, this is a little uncomfortable spiritually, you know, what do I, what do I say to this? I said, whatever happened to that 14 year old boy that, that worked here 18 years ago, you know, he just drove me nuts. And on cue, like it could be, I don't know what it was, the door to the building right next to where we are standing opens up and that young man steps out. Now he's in his thirties and married and his mouth falls open and he goes, you're Scott reader. I go, yeah. He said, John Schultz. I, you know, I, and I go, and then the directors explained to me, John just graduated from seminary. He's our new pastor here at the camp. And he, and he comes over and he goes, let me show you something. And he goes hurrying back into his office and he comes out with this Bible. And he says, Scott, you were the very first person to give me a Bible ever. And now, now I'm a pastor. And he opens up the Bible and you can see, I'd give him my personal Bible and you can see where my name was written in the front. And he was so excited. And, and he goes, and he, then he starts asking the same questions about us. And he goes, you know, if you got married here, I could officiate. You'd be the first couple I ever married. And I'm really getting kind of uncomfortable here. Like, oh, God's sending a message. And like, he's up to, not just sending me a message. He's basically whacking me in the head with a two by four. Not very subtle. Not very subtle. And um, Joan and I, I remember we hiked up to the chapel and we sat down on the step on this, this wooden chapel and we kind of hashed things out. And, uh, and I remember her crying and me crying and trying to get things settled. And finally, we ended up getting married at, at Camp Red Cloud in this chapel, April 19th, uh, 2003. And um, uh, we were the very first couple that um, John had ever officiated a wedding for. And um, that was God speaking to us. And that's the only thing I can come back with. I mean, those things just don't just happen by random, randomly. These things happen for a reason. And yet here you are, having gone to that location 18 years earlier, uh -huh. praying for something that didn't materialize until 18 years later. Yeah. And yet when it did, it did in such a way that it was made manifest to you, this was the answer to that prayer. You got it. You got it. That's the only reason I could ever come up with that um, that, that happened. I mean, it was a lot of uh, patience, uh, a lot of a lot of prayer. Did both mothers attend? 
actually my mother the woman who was to meet my mother-in-law passed away about two months before the wedding oh so that was that was sad and you know but but in a way it was a blessing that it was at the camp because it had been very difficult to try to have had the the wedding here locally with you know after joan's mom had passed i mean it would just been a lot even more trying i think but to be away from some of those painful memories and that sort of thing was i think a real blessing well hopefully she was able to attend just unseen yes i hope so i hope so uh, I don't know how all that works, to be honest with you, but um, I, I, do, I do believe in, there is an afterlife. Well, I don't think very many of us know exactly how that works. No. Even though we have this sense that there is life beyond the grave. Yeah. Yeah. Now, since that time, tell us more about your spiritual journey. I know a couple of things that are, uh, okay. I know more recently there have been You've led a Bible study group. You've undertaken a ministry in the prison system here in Illinois. Well, yeah. So, you know, I, as I said, I, I, you know, I've lived all over the country. I lived in Springfield area for about 22 years. And um, right before the pandemic, I reached out to somebody at our church and I said, you know, I'd like to get a prison ministry going. I don't know what was why I was doing that exactly, but I kind of felt prompted to do that. And I tried reaching out to some national prison ministries. They wouldn't get back to me. I was dealing with a number of people. It just wasn't seemed to click together at all. And then the pandemic happened and all the prisons were on lockdown and nobody could come and go in or go out. And, but when the pandemic was over, I got this phone call from somebody at church and he said, Hey, we have a man that's um, working in prison ministry at the Jacksonville Correctional Center. Would you be interested in working with him? And I said, sure. You know, Hey, I don't have to set this up. This is how it usually works with me when I do things. I'm the one that instigates and sets up the organization and all the, I'm an organized person. But somebody else is like taking care of this. Hey, more power to them. And um, it's a relatively new thing in my life. I mean, we just started doing it this summer. Um, I started um, going out to the Jacksonville prison and uh, we do a Bible study once a month with with the inmates and um, we pray together and we talk and we share concerns. Um, Sometimes we sing together. And then once a month, I um, will give a, either I or um, the other per, other man involved in the ministry will give um, a sermon and um, talk to the, talk to folks. And yeah, we kind of try to be very. I think it's really important that people who are serving time know that they're cared about, they're remembered. I mean. It's a horrible experience to be in prison, which is what it's intended to be. I mean, let's face it, it's punishment. Uh, But they worry about their wives and their girlfriends, their family, their kids. Will they be remembered? Or are they going to be just forgotten while they're behind bars? There's just a lot of issues. I mean, it's a strange, it's a different congregation than any other I've been involved with. When I sit down, there's one guy who always sits in the front row and he's got meth mouth. His teeth have all fallen out, and he's you know it's just uh, it's uh, it's delightful that it's 
it's multiracial. Um, people are willing to share across racial boundaries. In a prison, as you know, uh, for years as a prosecutor, racial barriers are huge in a prison set setting. I mean, uh, but in this, once they get together in the chapel, those barriers seems to come down and people are willing to be real and honest about who they are and that sort of thing. God unites. God unites. Exactly. I mean, uh, uh, black, white, and Hispanic folks um, are in there, you know, every, every week sharing their stories and their testimony and sharing their concerns, you know, I mean, um, and I'm always, one of the things that's always uh, remarkable to me is, I'll run into people with not backgrounds. I always expected, you know, I'm going to see all these people from the inner city. And there's a lot of people from the inner city there. But I run into people with very similar backgrounds to me. Like one of the guys I met last uh, last time I gave a sermon, he'd grown up on a hog farm like I had. And he was involved in, you know, he, we, knew, we knew some of the same people in the industry. And his um, wife is a college professor. And it's like, and you're here. You know, I mean, it keeps you grounded. And, you know, and Jesus gave that admonition. Whatever you do unto the least of, of these, you do unto me. I mean, you clothed me when you were, when, you were, when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. You visited me when I was in prison. And the disciples said, when did we do these things, God, our Lord? And uh, he said, when you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. And so sometimes people ask me, are you doing this to get browning points? Or, you know, you think you'll get in good with God basically by doing this. Uh, I never viewed it that way. Um, I view that when God is in us, he changes us. I mean, it says in, uh, I can't remember which epistle, that uh, the old self is crucified when we, we accept Christ into our life. And... The new self wants to do these things. It's our new nature. And I do these things because I think that is who I, who I am. So that is significant because you could have said, and perhaps some of our listeners expected you to say, I do it because I feel I should do it. But that's not what you said. No. You said, I do it because it's who I am. Exactly. It's who I've become. And in context, you were attributing that to God. Yeah, exactly. God has made you a new person. Exactly. And, you know, as we read in the New Testament, God is love. Yeah. And when we love, we experience God. Exactly. God is the source of that. Yeah. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount and all through the scriptures. That's that's the New Testament. That is the essence of godliness. Yes. And what you're doing with those people who are imprisoned mm -hmm. in a environment in which their human dignity, their sense of being human and having any dignity is under serious assault. Yes. In lots of ways. And yet here you, Scott Reeder, a respected member of the community, anybody who Googles your name, as they probably do, will find out something about you and your background. You come to them and minister to them 
spiritually. That in itself sends a powerful message of restoring their humanity. And yet, as you describe it, I can sense it also enhances your sense of your own humanity as a child of God, connecting with other children of God. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a young man that's a friend of mine who's serving time at another institution. I make a point of writing to him every two, not an email, but a regular letter every every week to two weeks, just so that he knows he's remembered. I mail him books because I can't imagine what it's like to have that much time on your hands. Use it constructively. Use it. And I know that when he receives a book, he knows he's remembered and he's appreciated. And I think I can't imagine what that's like to be physically separated from your family and to be going through that. Well, Scott, this has been a wonderfully enriching conversation. And I am confident that there are a lot more stories and layers that we could get into. And perhaps at some point in the future, we should have a sequel. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear. I'd love to talk on your um, Justice podcast sometime because I um, have done a lot of things in the wrongful conviction arena and investigated prosecutorial and uh, police misconduct and a lot of other issues over the years. That would be really welcomed. I can tell you, well, first of all, for those who may not be aware of it, I have a second podcast, which is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. And in that podcast, people will listen to the stories of people who have gone through the sort of experiences that led them to prison and, most importantly, what's happened either in prison, usually it's in prison, not because of prison, but because of things that happen, including like what you're doing, the ministry, something from outside the prison system itself, including just interactions with other people who are inmates in the prison, something's happened that changed the trajectory of their life. And at least five of the people I've interviewed have gone to prison for murder. Mm -hmm. And yet here they are living very different, wonderful lives. And many of them having turned around now, well, all of them that I'm thinking of have now devoted themselves to helping others either transition from prison successfully to the community, like Leonard Joyner, who co-hosts many of those of those episodes. Very nice man, by the way. He is. And yet, in a case that I prosecuted, he went to prison for 18 years. Yeah. And now we are very close friends and associates and co-hosts of the Justice Voices, uh, many episodes of the Justice Voices podcast. But my point is, what was that turning point in virtually every instance that I can think of, God showed up Yeah, in one way or another. They don't usually bring that up. But if I ask, did religion play a part in this? That opens the door and they tell how it did indeed. In fact, it was a pivotal role. Yeah. And so there's a lot of overlap between the two podcasts, yeah. uh, but that would be a welcome conversation that I would love to pick up with you and uh, 
mesh these two together because you have a lot more stories that need to be told yourself, and yours is a voice that needs to be heard. Okay, wonderful. This is God Unites, Finding Spiritual Unity in Religious Diversity.